And uh, let's pray. Um, Father, I just want to thank you so much. Thank you that we can sing to you. I thank you that for us every day is Christmas because we um, live in light of your incarnation, Lord, your crucifixion, your resurrection, your holy life every day, Lord, because that life's been imputed to us, Lord. Your righteousness has been given to us because of what you've done. And um, we just thank you so much for that, Lord. It's such an awesome thing to know that you who are um, infinite in all your ways and all your attributes and everything that you are chose to humble yourself and bear the image of a servant, of a slave. And not only that, but you died the death of a cross. And um, we thank you so much for that, Lord. And I pray that as we go through your word today, Lord, that you convict us, you'd reprove us, Lord. Um, you'd build us up by your awesome holy word, Lord. Help us to prepare our hearts to hear from you. Help us to be expectant to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you'd be with my mouth, Lord, that I could speak your word to your people. And uh, we love you, Jesus. We praise you. And um, if there's anybody else coming this morning, I pray that you'd get them here, here safe. Um, Lord, in your name, amen. All right. So John 14, we're going to be looking at 15, hopefully through the end of the chapter. We started late today, so we're going to leave late today. Um, so just, just to recap kind of what's been, what's been going on, it's the Last Supper, it's that last night, Thursday night, the night before the crucifixion. Jesus is going to be betrayed, handed over, his disciples are going to flee for him, from him. They're going to fail in their devotion to him. They're going to fail in their, um, their loyalty to him. But uh, the Lord's been comforting him in, in chapter 14, and that's what we've seen. So you remember the, the five Ps. Okay, Anybody got those down, got them written down? So what was it? His uh, promise. He, he comforts them by those four things. We're going to look at the fifth and sixth today. But he comforts, comforts them and us by his promise that he will return and gather us to himself, right? His person, that is who he is. He's one with the Father. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. Purpose, that's right. Do we still have a purpose here? He's given us a work to do, and he's empowered us to do that work, and he has given us prayer, prayer right? Prayer in his name. That's awesome. That's good. I thought I was just like spinning my wheels last week, but you guys really got that. Okay, and today we're going to look at the what? What's the fifth P? Yes, Aaron. Parakletos, right? Or paraclete, how do you pronounce it? Paracleton? Okay, okay, so it's close. <laughs> it's all I was looking for. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's start in verse 15. Jesus tells them, if you love me, keep my commandments. Or if you, um, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Um, or it could also be even more paraphrased. If you keep on loving me after I'm, I am gone, you will keep my commands. Um, you have to think, what are Jesus' commands? Okay, he gives this, he gives this, right after he's done talking about prayer, and he gives this um, 
encouragement to them. If you love me, you will keep my commands. Right? If you love me, you will keep my commands. What are his commands? You have to think about that. Okay? He tells us, if you love, okay, how do I love you, Lord? How do I show my love to you? How do I show my devotion to you? How do, you, how do I show that you've loved me so much that you gave yourself for me, and in response to that, I'm going to love you in return? How do we show that? By keeping his commands. And what commands are those? Okay? I don't really think there's a ton of commands in the New Testament. The number one command is to love, right? I want you guys to go to John, or 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 16. So work your thumbs, your index finger, grab those pages and turn them. 1 John chapter 3, right after 1 and 2 Peter, after Hebrews and James, right before 2 John. Okay, 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And you guys should all have that underlined in your Bible. Then he says, and by this we know that we are of the truth, and the truth assures our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have... Con- condemn us. We have confidence towards God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave his commandment. So yeah, two commands really there. One to believe. One to believe. God has commanded all men everywhere to repent, to believe in the gospel, that we may have eternal life, right? That's the, it's a commandment, to believe. Believe his word, believe what he says. To not believe is to call him a liar. So it's a command to believe and to love one another as he gave us commandment. We read that commandment right in chapter 13. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now look at uh, 1 John 5, 2 through 3. So just go forward a couple pages. He says, by this, so 1 John 5, verses 2 and 3, by this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Is it burdensome to love people? It's a little weighty. It's hard. Because you don't, have to, you don't have to like somebody to love them, right? I remember there was a certain individual at Horizon Littleton. And every time you see him, you're just like, oh, please. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Don't talk. Oh, he talk, he's talking to me. And you start just kind of like trying to be nice. When really, what, what are you supposed to do? Love him. So when I'm coming up, talk to you guys. Don't just walk away, okay? Love me. Love me. Um, Because this is how we know that we are the children of God, that we love one another, right? If we don't love each other, 
if we're not encouraging each other, if we're not putting ourselves on the line for each other, if we're not praying for each other, how can we say we love each other? Just because we say it? Just because we say it, that doesn't, that's not love. That's lip service. That's just being a talking head. But his commandments is not burdensome. So if you love Jesus, you'll keep his command, right? Someone who says he, he or she loves Jesus but does not do what he says, the love of God does not abide in him. If you say you love Jesus but you don't care about what he says, if you don't care enough to seek out the God who made all creation, who gives you food every day, who gives you breath in your lungs, who gives you everything that you have, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything. If you do not care about who he is, and instead you're passing back and forth candy in the middle of service right now, I have a problem with that. Okay, this is the word of God being preached, and we are going to sit here before it, and we're going to listen. Okay, but if you say you love God, you don't care what he says, you don't care who he is, you hate him. You hate him. You don't care about who he is. And instead, you are putting your freedoms and everything that you have in his face. So Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. This is not sentimental love. It's not a warm, fuzzy love. All right? wonder if I went to my wife every day and I said, oh, honey, I love you. But then she asked me to do something. I'm just like, oh, jeez. Plug my ears, walk away. Would that be love? Nick, try it. Just kidding. You'll be a dead man. Yeah. Okay? Or have you tried that? <laughs> you know, but if we, if we love our wives, what are we going to do? We're going to serve them. I know my wife loves me. Because she says it? No, because she shows it. She should know I love her because I show it. Right? And there's so many ways we can show it. How do my kids know I love them? Because I just blew buku bucks on Christmas, yo. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but what are, again, what are Jesus' Jesus's commandments? Number one, love one another. Believe in him, right? Two, love one another as he loved us. Um, three, love the lost, okay? Um, what is our mission statement here at Horizon? Anybody know? Win disciples, send, okay? We win a person to Christ, disciple a person in Christ, and then send that person out for Christ, right? That is our mission statement. That's what we want to do no matter how long it takes, no matter how much work it entails, that is what we want to do. So win a person to Christ, and he said to him, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. To every creature. Disciple a person in Jesus Christ, Matthew 28 and 19 through 20. Therefore go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Or lo, I am with you every day until the end of the age. In Greek, you should look that one up, make sure I'm right. Every day, daily, I'm with you till the end of the age. And then send a person for Christ, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and all Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth. Here's the uttermost parts of the earth. 
We're a long ways from Jerusalem, right? And Samaria and all those places. But the primary command is love. Why do we do all these things? Because we love God and we love one another. We love his people. We love the lost. How do we love the lost? By giving them the gospel. By, you know, a lot of times they don't like it. Because who wants to know that they're a sinner and they're going to burn in hell forever unless they believe in Jesus? You know, that's not a popular idea. But we love them and we show them that love and we sacrifice ourselves for them by putting ourselves in the position of giving them that gospel and telling them the good news and the bad news. That is how we love the lost. This is also a special verse to me, as most of you have heard. When I first became a Christian, this was the third thing that I knew God spoke to me. The first one was, you're going to go to hell. Okay, I read Psalm, or Proverbs chapter 1. I realized I had spurned all of his wisdom. I had not listened when he called out to me, and I just pushed back against him. And he said, therefore, I will laugh when calamity comes, when your calamity comes like a flood. And I knew that I was not right with God, that I was going to inherit his wrath for all of eternity. The second thing he told me was, God loves you. Jesus died for your sins. And I realized at that moment that he's the one who made the way. I could not make myself right before him. But he had made me right before the Father by his sacrifice on that cross. Um, And the third thing is because once I realized that he died for every sin I had ever committed in my life and that I was going to go to heaven no matter what, I thought, well, I can do whatever I want. I can go out and party as much as I want, I can do whatever I want, and I'm fine. I'm going to heaven. I'm safe, which is a little word we like to call antinomianism, right? Lawlessness, it means that we're just given over to lawlessness. And then God, within a week, within a couple weeks, just over and over and over again, I kept hearing this verse, like constantly, It was almost driving me nuts. If you love me, you will obey my commands. I'd turn on the radio. Somebody would be preaching on, if you love me, you will obey my commands. I'd open up my Bible, and it'd be one of those verses that that state that. If you love me, you will obey my commands. It was God telling me, do you love me? Do you love me? Then obey my commands. Do you appreciate what I have done for you on that cross? Then obey my commands. And his commands are not burdensome. They give you so much freedom. I mean, just think about it. To walk in sin, okay, to walk in sexual immorality, to walk in lawlessness, being a liar and a thief and all those things that I was, is a great burden. You have to worry about sexually transmitted diseases. You have to worry about getting caught by the police. You have to be worried about being caught when you're in a lie. That's burdensome. That is burdensome. But now that I'm in Christ, I don't have to do those things. I'm not a slave to those things anymore. And when I do mess up, what do I do? I take it to the Lord, and I take it before the person I've sinned against. And that burden is gone. That burden is gone. And then verse 16, he says, And I will pray to the Father, or I will pray the Father, or ask the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. So for those who love Jesus, he will pray or entreat the Father for another helper. Okay? Do you remember last week, the four Ps? Okay, again. 
his promise, his person, um, his purpose, and prayer, and the parakletos. Okay? That means the Holy Spirit, the helper, the one who gives aid to us, the one who is called alongside to us. That's what it means in, in Greek, para, you know, and kaleo. Kaleo means to be called um, aside one another. We've seen that when we've gone through Romans and other chapters. Um, but to be called alongside of us. So Jesus, in order that we can await his promise, right, that we can believe his person, that is who he is, that we can live with his purpose and do his work, right, and pray in his name, has given us a helper, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, to give us aid, to help us in those things and in so much more. So Jesus said that he would pray to the Father and he would send forth another helper, right? In the legal sense, um, parakletos means someone who is called alongside as an advocate, advocate, someone who helps another in court, whether as an advocate, a witness, or a representative. Okay, so it kind of gives you a picture of um, a use of that word more in a legal sense. So Jesus, what does he mean too by saying, I will give you another helper? Who's the first helper? Jesus is. He's the one that was called alongside to help, to help us in our need, to rescue us, to save us from our sins, and to show us who God is, right? To show us who God is. So Jesus is the first paraclete or parakletos, um, and he's going to send another, another in the, as, of the same kind, okay? The Holy Spirit is God. He's not some kind of impersonal force or anything like that. He helps us before God. He's an advocate on our behalf. Um, Romans 8, 26 through 28 says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows, the mind, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And, and I'm just going to, you know... Uh, kind of point to this, because of the in, in intercession of the Spirit, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Okay? It's because of the work of the Spirit that we know that all things work together for good. He's praying for us, intercessing for us. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. I mean, for most of us, that's pretty obvious, because we sit down to pray and we don't know what to pray for. <laughs> we don't know how to pray. Or we're praying just for comfort and stuff when the Lord's saying, no, they need some affliction. They need to be tried and tested. They need to have the dross scraped off of them. They need to be purified. They need to be more holy. Therefore, send them into the fires. But you will bring them out like gold, purified in fire, right? So he helps us in that way. The Spirit enables us to be witnesses Right? Luke uh, 24, 46-49, Jesus said to them, It is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued or clothed with power from on high. When do they get that power from on high? Pentecost, right? They're in the upper room, tongues of fire rest on them, 
It's the Holy Spirit, and um, he gives them utterance. He helps them to be witnesses to all the earth. So the Lord helps us with that. The old King James translates parakletos as comforter. And that's a good translation if you take it in the way they meant it back then. So in the 1600s, which meant more to strengthen, to encourage, um, to uh, secure, which means assistance and support in a time of hardship or, or distress. One who brings us courage and strength. Okay, he's our helper for that. Um, and we also represent Christ to this world by his spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.20, I'm going to read from the ESV. It says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Okay, an ambassador is somebody who goes from one country to another to represent that president or king or whatever. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. What does that say? God making his appeal through us. Through us. Why? Because he is in us. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What are we saying to all those who don't know Jesus? Be reconciled to him. Do you know what he has done for you? He died on a cross. He lived a perfect life. He humbled himself for you. For you, be reconciled to him. All you have to do is believe. You don't have to go through some religious hoops or anything like that. You just have to believe. And belief is putting your faith in him, trusting him, entrusting your life to him, saying, I am yours, you have saved me. That is what it is to believe, to cling to him with everything we've got. And as we go through John's gospel, we're going to see um, five more teachings on the Holy Spirit, okay, on this parakletos. Okay, um, I don't want to... I, didn't, I really tried not to jump ahead because then what am I going to teach in a couple weeks, you know? So go to verse 16 again. It says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So he's called the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. Why? Because he communicates the truth to this world. Right? Jesus says later, and okay, I said I wouldn't go forward too much, but I have to read this part because, you know, Scripture interprets Scripture. John 16, 12 through 15, so if you just go forward a couple chapters, it says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what, what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit is not some sort of impersonal force, right? Anybody read the shack? The Holy Spirit's kind of like an impersonal. Oh, wait, no, I'm not thinking of the shack. In the shack, it's a woman, right? In... Um, what was the one where the little boy goes to heaven? Heaven is for real. The Holy Spirit is this like blue mist that you know, moves along or something like that. The Holy Spirit's not an impersonal force, not something that we can manipulate by our faith or anything like that. He's a personal, rational being. He is God. He created all things. Right? When, when uh, 
the creation was taking place. It says, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and now the earth was without was formless and void, and the Spirit was hovering over the surface surface of the earth, right, or over the over the waters. And what was He doing? In in Hebrew, it's literally it could be taken as brooding, you know, getting ready to hatch its young, like a chicken brooding over its eggs, or a bird brooding over its eggs. It's not just some force. He's rational. He's personal. If he makes you do irrational things, it's not the Holy Spirit. Now, you see, if you turn on Christian TV, what do you see? A lot of irrational people doing irrational things because there is no rational spirit there. And the Holy Spirit's not meant for good feelings or crazy behavior, like, I, like I've said. John 16, 14 says, He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. He will glorify Jesus. And we've heard it said before that the Holy Spirit never brings attention to himself. He's always pointing, pointing towards Christ. Right? Pointing towards Christ. And how is it that the Spirit of truth communicated that truth to the apostles and to us? Through Scripture. Right? Through Scripture. I want you guys to go to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16. Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says... All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So first off, um, what it means inspired is, tell me if I pronounce it wrong, Aaron, theonistos, something close to that, okay, means God breathed, God breathed. I was listening to R.C. Sproul a long time ago, and um, it's not just God breathed like he breathed in, like inspire, like we have in the New King James, but expired. He breathed out scripture, and it's a continuous action that he does. He's constantly breathing out scripture, right? I'll explain that in a minute, but it's profitable for doctrine, that is teaching, okay? For reproof, that's conviction of the truth or conviction of sins, um, for correction, that's bringing somebody under the authority of Scripture, of God. For instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So listen, we're not just reading another book. When you come to your Bible, are you expectant? It's theonistos. God breathed. He's continually breathing it out to us. Right? The Word of God... As a God-breathed book, it's in a continual, continual state of being breathed out by God. The New King James says all scripture is inspired. And again, it should be expired. Constantly breathing it out. Has God ever stopped breathing out his word, speaking his word? Has he ever stopped? No. It says that in Psalm 119.89, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Right? The word of God does not change. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. 
but yet it's living and active. It says in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So when you're reading this book, you're not reading just another book. It's living and active, right? It's God-breathed. In Psalm, 19, or Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Does something that's dead have any effect on anything else? You know? The Spirit of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And then Second uh, Peter 1.21, and you guys should be writing down these verses or uh, marking them or something if you, if you have a pen. It says uh, in 2 Peter 1.21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. They, were, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Does that sound like something that's dead? He's breathing them out. They're living and active. Hebrews 3, 7 through 8. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, and he's going to quote the scriptures, he's going to quote the Old Testament, today, today, if you will, okay, just break that up a, lot, a little bit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will, if you will, you can either reject God's word or you can cling to it and say, it is true and I submit myself to it. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness. Notice it says, today, if you will hear his voice. It doesn't just say, if you will read his word. Okay, If you will hear his voice. This, is a, this speaks to us still. It is the voice of God to us. A.W. Tozer says this in The Pursuit of God. He said, God did not write a book and send it by a messenger to be read at a distance by unaided minds. He spoke a book and lives in his spoken words, constantly speaking his words and causing the power of them to persist across the years. And then Jesus said in Matthew 4.4, 4, but he answered and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Where do we find every word that proceeds from the mouth of God? In our Bibles. On these pages, written with ink and paper and covered in leather. That is where we find the word of God. Could he make it more simple for us? You know, Who has ascended up to heaven to bring Christ down? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your hearts. Right? It's near to you. It's near to you. I mean, think about that. When you are sitting down at your table with your cup of coffee or you're at work or you're sitting in your car, 
Are you hearing the word of God as you read it? Is it living and active to you? Or is it just something to be studied? It is literally the voice of God to us. And we can either hide ourselves from it and say, I don't want any part in that. Or we can make it something that it's not. Or we can cling to it. He says that he has lifted up his word above his name. Because his promises are sure. He will not fail us. He will not let us down. He will not put it, let us be put to shame. I mean, think about this. Right now, my family and I are waiting to move here to Golden. Okay? And there is opposition and there's doubt and people try to put the doubt on us. Like God's not going to do it. But he says in his word, those who wait on me will not be put to shame. And I believe it. It is his word to me. It is his voice that I am hearing. And I will wait until he shows me otherwise or until he brings us out here. And I can either believe that scripture or I can reject it. I can either believe how I'm supposed to raise my kids or I can reject it. I can believe how I am supposed to work or I can reject it. I can believe that when I preach his word that it will accomplish that for which he sends it to do or I can do it in timidity and, um, and doubt. Is your faith in what he says? Is your faith in what he says? And every time you go before the word, every time you sit down, every time you're listening to a sermon, you have to decide, am I going to tremble before his word so I can obey it? Or am I going to make light of it and think, well, yeah, the teacher probably didn't quite interpret that right and stuff like that. And maybe he didn't. We ought to be Bereans and show ourselves approved. But when we try to find loopholes, or we like somebody else's teaching because it suits our flesh more, we're in big trouble. We're not trembling before his word. And everything I say, take it to the Lord. Take it to his word. Find out. I could miss his context in, in anything that I read. But go back, and, but be ready to obey it. Be ready to believe it and obey it, not just prove that I'm wrong. So he says, if you love me, you will obey my commands, and I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Forever. Isn't that awesome? The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the world didn't see him. Why? Because they rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They hung him on a cross. They crucified him. They hated him. They spit on him. What did the world say about Jesus? They said about all his miracles and everything that he did, it's by Beelzebub that he does these miracles. It's by the prince of darkness that he does all these works. That's what they said about him. And can we expect any difference? Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. If they hate me, they'll hate you. So when we go out giving the words that the Spirit has given us, 
through his Bible, when we go out and giving the message, people are going to hate us. What are they going to say? You're bigoted? You don't agree with homosexual marriage? No, we don't. It's a sin. And so is sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. Okay? What does Galatians 5 say? Now let's go there real quick. Galatians chapter 5. Right before Ephesians and Philippians, after First Corinth or Second Corinthians. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident in verse 19 of chapter 5 of Galatians. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things, those who are in that continual lifestyle, who don't repent of them, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you hate God, you're going to do those things that God hates. Right? You're going to be worshiping the sun, the moon, and the stars, and trees, and stuff like that. You're going to be living in a homosexual relationship. If you hate God, you're going to do those things he hates. But if you love God, you're going to obey his commands, and it's not going to be burdensome. It's going to give you freedom beyond what you can imagine. It's going to give you freedom that the rest of this world doesn't have. The rest of the world thinks they're free, but they're not. And I tell you when you see it, and um, older people, you've already seen it. You've seen your friends go down the tubes. Nick and Priscilla, you guys have probably already started to see it. When you get to my age, you're going to see it more and more. And I can only imagine, you know, when I'm 40, right? That's this year. Okay. Maybe when I'm 50, it's going to be really bad. I'm sure a lot of them will start dying off. You know, when they, does this, is this normal when you have like a high school reunion? It's every 10 years. So you have your 10 year, your 20 year, and then 20 year, and then you have your 25 year. And they start doing it in increments of five years because people start dying. Right? Is that right? Is that how they do it? I didn't know that until I went to my 20th year reunion this last summer and they're like, well, we'll see you in five years. I was like, why? What about a 30-year? No, it's 25 because people start dying. Drugs, drunkenness. You know, that's just a few things. Sometimes it's cancer, you know, stuff that can't be controlled. But people start dying off. And they live in a way that shows that they hate God, that they don't want to have anything to do with him. But Jesus says, the world... Um, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice he, will do, he dwells with you. He's talking to his disciples, his apostles. He dwells with you, para, with you, alongside of you. In what way? Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit, right? In that way. But he's also going to be in you. As an unbeliever, okay, what is the Holy Spirit doing? He's sending you annoying Christians to tell you about Jesus. 
to convict you of your sins. And he's dwelling with you. Right? He's urging you to come to Christ. But then when you believe what happens, he lives in you. In you. Isn't that awesome? He dwells with you and will be in you. So just imagine the disciples again, okay? They're going to fail. They all know it. Jesus is going to be taken from them. He's going to be betrayed. They're all going to scatter. They're going to forsake him. Peter's going to deny him, saying, I don't even know the man. Over and over again, in front of a bunch of little girls. I mean, really. I mean, imagine if I was scared of Daisha, someone her age, and Angie. Angie's her friend back there. Okay? Imagine. Oh, don't, don't you know Jesus? No, I don't. Weren't you with him? No, I wasn't. Peter, this big burly fisherman, scared of little girls, little servant girls. They're going to fail. And he says, the spirit dwells with you and will be in you. You're going to have power. You're going to have power. Imagine the comfort that this gives the disciples, if they understood it. I don't believe they did. But it should, and it should encourage us. We have the spirit of the living God living in us. And so, there's a couple things that that could mean. One, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm skipping forward to verse 18. So then he goes on, he says, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. I will not leave you, of, uh, not leave you orphans, I will come to you. So what did Jesus mean by this? Either one, that he would come to them at the, after the resurrection. Two, at the rapture, which he had already talked about. Three, when a believer dies. Um, four, during some kind of mystical experience. Okay. Or, I would choose this one. Jesus comes to the believer in the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because the word orpho for orphans would also mean, could also mean helpless. I will not leave you helpless. Okay, Because what is an orphan? A little baby doesn't have parents, a little child. They're helpless. They have nobody to help them. So it could be just that the meaning is, I will not leave you helpless. I will come to you. And how is he going to come to them? In the ministry of the Holy Spirit. All right? So I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I'm not going to leave you helpless. I'm going to give you the helper. In um, 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6, it says this. Because again, remember the attitude of the disciples. They're going to fail. Okay? Without Jesus, what are we going to do? We are going to fail. But it says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5 through 6, it says, not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. So not of the, the, the law, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What was the purpose of the law? To show everybody that they're going to die, that they deserve death. The spirit, that there's a chance for life. We are sufficient in, in the Lord. On our own, we are not. With, on our own, we're helpless. We're like sitting in a dead note in the water. We're like in a boat with no power. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. Imagine if you came out to a lake, and you saw me in the middle of, in the, middle of the lake in my little canoe, and I'm just, and I had no paddles, no engine or anything like that, and I'm just 
inside the boat just pushing as hard as I can and my face is getting red and my muscles are just bulging and stuff like that. I'm just kidding. And um, I'm just straining and I'm out of breath and I'm like, <sighs> and I'm just pushing as hard as I can. And you, you're sitting there thinking, what on earth is he doing? Does he not know the basics of physics? That you have to have an external force pushing against? I mean, think about it. We want to live holy lives. We want to love the Lord. We want to obey his commands. We want to do his works. And what do we, what do, we do a lot of times? And it's so easy. We rely on ourselves. That's just like us pushing the boat from inside the boat. You're just going to rock it and probably tip it over. What we need is the spirit of the living God. Um, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 and 8. In Romans chapter 7, verse 18, he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good, I do not find. He doesn't have the power. He, he has the will. He's, he's redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves God, but he has no power to do what is good. And then he ends it with, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in chapter 18, he unveils the answer. All right, 18 verse, or not 18, chapter 8 in Romans, it says in verse 11, But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, when we have the spirit, it's like attaching that motor to the back of that boat. It's inside, it's outside, and it's pushing us onwards, right? If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we have no power. So how comforting is this for the disciples who are going to fail him, who are wondering how they're going to do all these things? They don't even know where Jesus is going. They're completely lost. Their expectation was that he would set up his kingdom and rule the earth, not go and die on a cross and then be raised and go back to heaven. Their expectation was that he would be a ruler on the earth at that time. So verse 19, it says, A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. So how do we see him and how do we know him? Those who believe or who would believe saw him for 40 days, right? They saw him again when he rose from the dead. That's like one of the greatest evidences that we have that Jesus truly rose from the dead. Okay, just think of a man who is brutally beaten, flogged. His, his flesh is just in ribbons. Okay, on a cross with nails in his wrists. And then they thrust a spear into his side, break his pericardium. And water and blood pours out of his side. They wouldn't be expecting him to come back to life. Right? He goes into the tomb. They bury him for three days, and then he raises from the dead, conquering sin and death for all time, for all who believe in him. And then he raised, and he was with them for 40 days. It says in Corinthians that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at once. More than 500 people at once. And we've seen him. Maybe not physically with our eyes, but we have seen him through the eyes of faith, through his word, through the illumination of the Holy Spirit, 
in Colossians 1.27, it says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory, of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The best evidence that Christ has risen is that he is in me, and that he is in all those who believe. That is really what convinces me. You know, we can look at all kinds of proofs and stuff that Jesus really rose from the dead, but the one thing that truly convinces me is Christ in me. That Jesus literally, by the Spirit, lives in me. He's marked me, sealed me, saved me. It's kind of like Balaam. Did Balaam ever see Christ? Remember Balaam, Book of Numbers, the prophet whose donkey talked to him? Right? He says this in Numbers 24, 15 through 17. It says, So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor, the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened, the utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy the sons of Tumult. Balaam saw Jesus, but he rebelled against him. Right? He loved the wages of sin more than of righteousness. He loved cash more than he loved the truth. And what did he do? He told the king of Moab, he said, you know what, just send out a bunch of really pretty girls and who worship false deities and, and the Israelites will take them as their wives and they'll start worshiping and then God will be against them. It'll stumble them. And that's what he does. And he, even though his eyes were wide open, he, decide, he, decided, he decided to close them against the truth. But I am convinced by Christ because I have seen him through the eyes of faith. Jesus said, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. I have seen Christ through his word, through what he has done in me. So do I just believe because of the external evidences of the Bible? I mean, think about it. We're always looking for those external evidences. We love them because it kind of validates a little bit. But do we rely on those? Are they more authoritative than the word of God? Or philosophy of religions? Is that more authoritative than the word of God? No. Is it because of our feelings, our emotions? I had a lady at work. I was trying to, trying to tell her about the Lord and everything. And she says, you know, I kept trying to go to church and stuff like that. And I just never gotten an emotional experience. So I just gave up. That was so sad. You're sitting there hearing the word of God, and what you really want is an emotional experience. You want to feel. I don't have to feel God. I don't have to sit here and feel goosebumps or, you know, feel excited or anything like that. I know he is real. I know that he has changed my life. I know that his word is true. By his word. And also, he says, he will be in us. I am in Christ, right? 
I am in him according to his meritous work for me. I'm in him. His good works, his righteousness is then imputed to me. That's also what it means to be in him. Verse 21 in John 14, it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, so it's probably Judas the Zealot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you'll manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So in a way, he's thinking, how are are you going to show us your glory? How are you going to manifest, show us who you are, but not at the same time show the world? Aren't you supposed to come and be that reigning king? Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So again, he's going to dwell in us, right? Isn't this awesome? Is there anything more amazing than the fact that our God lives in us? I mean, think about every other religion in the world. What do they teach? You do this, you do this, you do this, and you get to God. Only biblical Christianity teaches God did this, and he came to us. Right? And if you believe his works, he comes and lives in you? It's insane. It's amazing. And just think about it. Not every church, or the church as a whole, not the buildings, but the living church made of people, the called out congregation, should be the most powerful force on earth. I mean, think about that. We have the spirit of the living God who spoke everything into existence, who is outside of all creation at the same time within all creation, moving through. He lives in us. We should be the most powerful force on earth. And even the single believer. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5 says this. says, Though we walk according to the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Because when I say we should be the most powerful force on the earth, I mean, what do you kind of think of? Maybe you're thinking of military force. You know, maybe you're, I don't know what you'd be thinking of. I don't know what I'd think of. But we should think of this. For we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. And think about it. What are the weapons of our warfare? What are our weapons? The word of God, right? The proclamation of the gospel. Sacrificial love to sacrifice ourselves for the Lord, for God, to be a living sacrifice to him, and to then sacrifice ourselves for our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even for the lost, that they may know who Christ is. And then intercessory prayer. Those are our weapons. I don't know, can anybody think of any more? Those are our weapons. Prayer, the gospel, and love and the word of God. Those are our weapons. We should be loving with such power, with the power that God gives us. We should be preaching with such power from the Holy Spirit. And we should be praying 
on our knees, earth-shaking, bloodied need prayer. Praying, not just fickle little prayers. Oh, Lord, bless this meal. Let us have a good day. Amen. But truly, praying in the Spirit. Praying for God's will to be done on this earth. Praying for his mind. And look at verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my commands, or not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So, um, in Greek, according to Robertson, this is the present active. He who does not love me. So, the one who keeps on not loving me. The one who continues in their sin, who will not turn. The one who will not love me. Does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So this is another promise to the disciples or the apostles, that the Holy Spirit would bring to remembrance all things that the Lord had spoke to them. I mean, just think, three years traveling with him, hearing his teachings, hearing all the things that he said, and they wrote it down in such an awesome way. We have four Gospels. Okay, and then we have all the epistles in Revelation. The Holy Spirit brought to remembrance those things which Jesus spoke to them. How else would John remember? When does he write? He writes in about 90 AD, about 60 years after Christ ascends to heaven. 60 years? He's an old man. How does he remember? And how does he know how to interpret these things now, when they couldn't before? Remember in chapter 12, the uh, disciples put Jesus on that donkey. He rides down in Jerusalem. They're putting their coats and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. It says the disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things and were written about him and that they had done these things to him. The Holy Spirit taught them about all the things that Jesus had said and interpreted it for them so that they could understand it. All right? And in, in one sense, that's also true for us. Okay? Not in the same sense. They're inspired writers. The God, God breathed those scriptures through them, into their minds, into their hearts, and out into their hand so they could write it on paper for us. But at the same time, I mean, when I first heard this verse, I, I thought I'd only have to read the Bible once. Like, seriously, that's what I thought. I thought, okay, I'll read the Bible, and then whatever I need, the Lord's just going to bring to remembrance. <laughs> and uh, I found out quickly that that wasn't true. But there are times, and I think most of you guys could probably relate to this, when you're doing something or something comes up and the Word of God is just shot into your head. Or you're talking to someone, and you're like, man, I didn't even know I knew that scripture. I didn't even know I had it memorized. And God tells you what to say. I remember working in a warehouse, and uh, is that McKesson, my last job before the one I'm at now, and everybody was foul-mouthed and disgusting there. I mean, every other word was bleep, 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 blap, right? Or using God's name in vain, using Jesus' name in vain, 
everything. And they were all complaining against each other, against the boss, against the work, and everything. And the one verse that came to my mind was this. It was um, Philippians 2.14. It says, Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may be blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I couldn't get that verse out of my head. The Lord kept bringing it to my remembrance over and over because that's what I needed to do, to be a light there, to be a witness there. If I would have fallen into what they were doing, complaining and everything, I wouldn't have been a light. And the only reason they didn't want to fire me, okay, they wanted to fire me because my work was horrible. I wasn't very good at the job. But the only reason they didn't want to fire me is because I was such a um, positive employee. They even told me that. We don't want to let you go because we think you have such a good effect on the other workers, but you make too many mistakes, you know, because you're counting just all night long. It was, I was really glad they fired me. It was horrible. It was probably the worst job I've ever had. But Okay, then Jesus says, so we're almost to the end, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So here's the sixth Okay, so let's run over them again. Promise, his person, his purpose, his prayer, the parakletos, the Holy Spirit, and now his peace. My peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So what is, when the world gives to us, what does it do? It's not permanent. It takes it back. It's like a tease. We think we have peace, but we don't. You young people, you're going to find this great guy one of these days, and he's going to let you down. He's, you're going to have no peace with him, right? You're going to have to wait on the Lord, the one that the Lord sends. And even then, it might not be that peaceful all the time. It comes with hardship and self-sacrifice and everything. But if the Lord gives you that person, if he is um, a godly man, or if she ends up being a godly woman, there's going to be peace in that. I have peace with my wife because I know that our relationship is in the Lord. It's bound up in his relationship with us. But he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. So it's not just any peace. It's his peace, the peace that Jesus has with the Father, that perfect peace, that's what Jesus gives to us. That's what Jesus gives to us, that perfect peace. Because when you're, before you're a believer, you're at war with the Lord. You're at war with him. You are violent against him. And you are a child of wrath in his eyes. But when you come to Jesus, he gives you peace with God. So my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. So as the Father, like, greater God than Jesus is? No. He's greater in, like, Jesus submitted himself under the Father. Right? But he's, they're both equal in being. Are my kids lesser humans than I am because they're my kids? No. No. You're not lesser. Daisha said, yeah, we are. No, you're not. You're precious. Right? Verse 29, and now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. And this is a great reason to study prophecy, too. We find out the things that God said he would do and that he did. It gives us reason to believe. When you read in the Bible, Isaiah 53, and it talks about Jesus' crucifixion 700 years before it happens, that should bring you comfort. That should bring you comfort. When you read the prophecies in Daniel about the nations and the world empires and stuff like that, and it comes to pass literally, when Alexander the Great divided his kingdom among his four generals just like the scripture said it, he would, that should bring comfort. Confidence in the word of God. And he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. How is he coming? Through Judas. Judas is on his way with a detachment of soldiers to take Jesus by force if they need to. Satan is the ruler of this world. And, he's, and Jesus says he has nothing in me. The ESV says he has no claim on me. Or um, I think the New American Standard said he has no power over me. Satan would have a claim on Jesus if Jesus was a sinner. When I read that verse, I think of the Chronicles of Narnia. And you remember when Aslan is taken to the stone table, and the the white witch says that, um, you know, talks about the deep magic. I can't remember it all, you know, but um, she's basically saying, I have power over the life of Edmund, over the boy who had sinned, right? And so uh, Aslan gives his life and puts himself underneath the white witch. And so in, in a similar way, that's what Jesus did. But Satan had no power over him. He put himself under that. It was under the mighty hand of God. In 1 John 3.8, it says, He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. So if you sin, you're of the devil. You belong to him. He has a claim over your life. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The gospel is multifaceted. And how did he destroy the works of the devil? When he rose from the dead. He died for our sins and he rose from the dead. He destroyed the works of the devil. So if you are in Christ, the devil has no claim on you either. Right? His work has been destroyed. He has no claim on you. He has no authority over you. You belong to God now. You don't belong to him. Look at that verse again. He who sins is of the devil. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. So if you're in Christ, he has no claim on you. If you're outside of Christ, though, you are not safe. You should be afraid. You should be terrified. Because the one who wants to destroy you owns you. Owns you. Verse 31, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Notice how he brings that all the way back around. If you love me, obey my commands. What did Jesus do? He loved the Father, and he obeyed his command, commands. And then he says, arise, let us go from here. So they leave the upper room at this point, and they probably start going to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. So should we be troubled? Should we be afraid if we're in Christ? No. We have his promise. 
His person. Um, I keep forgetting. His purpose is prayer, the parakletos, and we have his peace. Amen and hallelujah. Right? So, um, Father, we thank you so much. Your word is so good. It was breathed out by you, Lord. I pray that um, we would see greater works of you, Lord, in this world. Lord, every time we turn on the news, we see horrible things. Children being murdered. Police officers being shot. People starving. False satanic religions decapitating people. Setting children on fire. Doing horrible, awful things. And I pray that you would do a great work Lord, I pray that you would enable us, that you would prepare us to do your works. Lord, this week, Lord, that we would not be content going one day without praying for somebody, without giving somebody your gospel, without loving somebody for you. Lord, without clinging to you, without loving you. Lord, we do love you. We want to obey your commands. Give us power. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do communion. So if you want to come up and take it, remember communion is 